Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trasilla from Somerset CCG, and I'm joined by my colleague and friend, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, GP and CCG Clinical Lead for Mental Health. And we're really pleased today to welcome Dr. Chris Grieco, and we're going to be talking about foraging for well-being. Chris, a very warm welcome to you. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you, Peter, for, for having me on. It's, um, it's an absolute pleasure to come on and spread the word about foraging. So before we talk about foraging, Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I understand you're, you're a doctor working in Somerset, and tell us a little bit about that and, and then your interest, please. Yeah, so I'm a junior doctor in my uh, second year now of, of being a doctor. Uh, it's been an interesting start and been quite lucky to do uh, my junior doctor years in Taunton and Musgrove, um, where we're surrounded by you know plenty of uh, green spaces, the Quantocks, Blackdowns, Mendips. Um, and in pandemic life, I found myself spending as much time as I could outside of work, outside to, uh, I suppose, de-stress and um, yeah, just reconnect with uh, Mother Nature a little bit. And what's your speciality, Chris? So I'm still doing rotations, currently on orthopaedic uh, orthopedic rotation. So I've not yet gone gone down a particular uh, specialty yet. And I remember you talk about the benefits of, of nature and so on. When, when we taught students, uh, the, we're looking at the evidence that if you are recovering, say, from a, a hip replacement, if you've got a view of something green outside, you're much less likely to have complications from your surgery. Is, is that right? I think I can definitely see that in the patients that we have with uh, a lovely, you know, view of, of the outside. They do tend to um, progress a little bit quicker with their rehab um, and get moving, I suppose, after a big operation like that. So there are there are hard benefits from nature as well as the soft side. But you're going to tell us about foraging. So th- this is fascinating, something certainly I know nothing about. So how did you get into it? What 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 does this involve? What do you forage? So I think uh, it all came about various aspects sort of came together all at once. My grandmother had always um, taken me out on on walks and always taught me about wildflowers and things like that. But I never really took too much, uh, you know, notice to to learn what she was telling me. I always appreciated it, but um, never really, you know, dedicate my own time to learn about it until I'd finished my medical school finals um after that point i was just completely saturated with learning about medicine and just uh, stumbled upon um a book called food for free by richard maybe um i was a pretty poor student at that point i had been studying for six years and i thought wow look at this food for free um and i basically spent the last two years sort of um really uh, spending time outside and, and learning absolutely everything I uh, everything I can about um, wild food and um, particularly um, mushrooms and wild plants. I'm, I'm fascinated you mentioned that book because my mum had it and uh, was very much into that and so, some of the things were, were great. Uh, I remember her making coffee out of roasted dandelion roots that was maybe not the most successful uh, <laughs> free food but uh, some of the things really interesting so what what are your favorites from from that yeah I, I like to keep it simple generally speaking uh, you know the anything which has a, a long process to produce a uh, coffee um 
I'll probably stick with uh, stick with the, the shop bought stuff. But in terms of things you can directly pick and eat, so um, fruits and berries and, and mushrooms in particular, where there's a, a fruiting body there to to put straight into the pan, um, that's that's what I tend to go for. But you can get really creative and um, in producing these incredible recipes, as you kind of alluded to there with the, the coffee. There are all sorts of teas decoctions and um things like that that can be made liqueurs uh yeah there's absolute abundance of uh of recipes to take from nature's larder and i understand you've got a particular interest in mushrooms and i i must admit when i i heard about foraging i i was slightly nervous about this and that quotation about all mushrooms are edible, but some are edible only once came to mind. So uh, are we advocating that our listeners go out and uh, and gather mushrooms and cook them? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you've, what you've alluded to there is something I would, I would call mycophobia. So a, a fear of mushrooms. Um, mushrooms are... Um, there's there's actually no evidence whatsoever to say a mushroom can harm you from handling it. There's one case report from China of a mushroom that doesn't grow in the UK um, that, where someone might have had an irritative reaction to, to handling it. But other than that, the only harm you can come to is, is from ingesting something. So absolutely, it's safe to, to go out and uh, identify things. Obviously, when it comes to ingesting and eating something, then you need to take great care in identifying. And my my golden rule is never munch on a hunch. If you're not 100 percent sure, don't eat it. <laughs> that's a great one. I think that that's a phrase that will stick with quite a lot of us. So, what things can we safely ingest that are out in the wild? Because again, we're all brought up on these these lovely red berries that would kill us in an instant. So, <laughs> what what's safe and what isn't? So, I mean. You you stumble across across all sorts of uh, of wild edibles every day, um, most of which you wouldn't even you know think to eat. But things that are, our ancestors have literally you know lived on uh, for hundreds of thousands of years before agriculture um, became established. So you know we really do have. Um, uh, absolute plethora of of ingredients to to consume and eat but it it seems that we've lost our uh, knowledge in discerning what is safe to eat and what's not thank you so i grew up uh, in in somerset and uh, we used to gather field mushrooms which are sort of palish creamish on top with darker gills underneath and I would imagine those are fairly safe, uh, and some of them could be quite small, but some of them could be the size of a dinner plate, and they, well, I suppose, all fungi start as sort of little knob and then then grow out. But but would would we always be safe in 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 identifying something like that? Whereas white gills underneath, I was very worried about. So that's yeah, interesting. You should say that there are rules of thumb that um, that are good to use, but you know, even with things that look like field mushrooms or you know like shop-bought button mushrooms those are the species agaricus bisporus and generally speaking in the uk the agaric family uh have what you've described there as a, a white top with brown chocolatey gills underneath they there is an important poisonous one to mention and that uh which is called the yellow stainer so a really important one for beginner 
uh, mushroom foragers to learn about, which looks almost identical to a field mushroom. But when you scratch the uh, the surface, um, the white outer skin or the stem, you should get this uh, this rather immediate yellow staining, which um, can be brought on even more pronounced if you take that mushroom and put it in some boiling water then the the water stains yellow and it smells of iodine so that's a, a good test for uh if you think you've got a field mushroom and presumably even if we're uh, a little bit nervous about munching on a hunch and uh, and just prefer to gather things for the the pleasure of it there, there are other benefits to foraging are they do you do you see lots of wildlife while you're foraging for instance yeah, absolutely. I just want to clarify there uh, <laughs> what I what I was just saying. The yellow stainer is a separate and distinct species from the field mushroom. Field mushrooms, as Andrew mentioned, are are perfectly safe to eat, but the yellow stainer is a, a poisonous lookalike in the same family, the agaric family. But yeah, coming back to your your point of you know the the wider um, well being benefits uh, of being outside, I recently come across the the five ways to well-being which i'm sure you you know very well um and i was just astounded how you know how well foraging ticks all of these these five pillars so you know connecting you're connecting with um your surroundings with mother nature and um, p- potentially with other people you're on a walk with you're active you know you're outside um getting exercise you're really taking notice of your surroundings it's a level of concentration that doesn't allow you to, uh, you know, be distracted by your phone um, or whatever other modern distractions are. Um, it hel- helps you to keep learning as well. That that fear that you get when you think you've found something, but you're not quite sure is enough to make you go away and uh, and learn exactly what you've found, I, I think, personally. Anyway. And the the last pillar is um, is giving. And I think, just this to and fro we're having at the moment about uh, the benefits is a, is a way of giving and sharing information, but you could also be sharing food as well. So it really is a real, uh, you know, uh, fantastic all round activity for wellbeing. That's really interesting. We Time and nature. And I'm thinking of compost. And the reason I'm thinking of compost is because something from deep childhood, the best Field mushrooms, and I'm sorry to go back to field mushrooms again, the best field mushrooms seem to be found in an old cow pat, and I don't know whether that's, that's fact or fiction, but it always seemed to be, or I stepped in one. I can't remember whether that was what would happen at the time. Um, Chris, just to ask, are there any apps that can help us identify um, uh, plants, flowers, fungi that are, are helpful to us? Yes, there, there are. I mean, generally speaking, um i would stay well away from apps that try and do the identification for you so things where you take a photograph of it i wouldn't recommend any like that but particularly for mushrooms there's a fantastic app called shroomify uh, much like spotify you know but shroom um that is excellent because it doesn't try and identify the mushroom for you it will guide you through um some different characteristics step by step uh, so for example has it got a cap and a stem or is it a, a bracket fungus growing on a tree um, and then sort of take you through the different id features to help you narrow down um, your identification rather than doing it all for you um, like an ai sort of google lens sort of thing might do um, chris you just mentioned bracket fungus 
Could you explain what a bracket fungus is and are any of them edible or, or not? But what, what is a bracket fungus? So bracket fungus um, is any fungus that grows uh, horizontal from a tree, generally speaking. Um, and that can be from a dead tree or a living tree. Those you can then, you know, um, subclassify again. So if it's growing from a living tree, is it a parasitic fungus? And if it's growing from a dead tree, is it a what we'd say is a rotter, a saprophytic fungus um, that grows from a dead host? So as you see, you know, just breaking down, we're already sort of getting into the subclassifications. It's like many things in in medicine and in life in general. Humans like to put things in boxes to help us understand them, um, and it's something that uh, yeah we <laughs> we can do over and over again with uh, with mushrooms. Can I ask you about a, a different box when we're foraging? So I, I mentioned earlier berries. Uh, have you got a, a quick classification for for which nice looking berries are edible and which ones we need to be careful about, or, or is it not that straightforward? I wish I did. Um, <laughs> there's, there's not a good rule of thumb for everything. Berries, berries, I'm afraid, aren't one that I've uh, thought of just yet or come across. Um, there are some fantastic berries which are bright red and tasty um a good example actually is a berry that grows on a, a very poisonous and deadly tree the yew tree um it's often found in graveyards but the berry actually is is edible as long as you're really careful not to consume the central pip um contains a really high level of taxol which is a, a poisonous chemical uh, and used in chemotherapy peter I was just about to say uh, ovarian cancer and so on. It, it, it yes, it's uh, it's used uh, to treat cancer, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Sorry, just back to the you. So the the you could make a sort of a jelly from the 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 red bit, the red jelly stuff. Yeah, or just just eat, eating the berries themselves. Um, you know, just being really careful to discard the pip or to spit it out. But a, a note on a note on yew trees. You know, if you find a bracket fungus growing on a yew tree, then you've got to presume that it might have a high concentration of taxol in the mushroom itself. Um, and there's a excellent bracket fungus that usually grows on oak or cherry called chicken of the woods. Um, so named because it it has a fantastic chicken-like texture. Um, but it can also grow on yew trees. So um, those ones are generally. Uh, regarded as inedible and potentially toxic. The other uh, plant that kind of uh, states its nature in its name is deadly nightshade, isn't it? Do you want to tell us about that? This is kind of British language, really, that that is uh, is really helpful for knowing what's good to eat and what's not. Um, and we can thank our ancestors for that. Um, there are so many uh, mushrooms and plants that have, have these great names, deadly nightshade, the death cap. Uh, for the funeral bell and um, these are well-known established you know poisonous and deadly um, mushrooms and plants but there are a few sort of misnomers um, there's one fantastic edible mushroom as well called uh, some people call it the, um, the horn of plenty in in british but the uh, trompe de mort in uh, french which is the trumpet of death and it's a, a black trumpet-shaped mushroom that looks as though maybe someone buried underneath the ground is blow, blowing and playing on this, uh, this beautiful black trumpet just uh, above the surface of the ground. 
And is it poisonous or is it safe to eat? It's a safe edible. It's in the, the chanterelle family, which is a, one of the sort of absolute choice edible families. So, yeah, it, it's a really interesting area. And I think particularly why uh, maybe British people and uh, English and Germanic languages uh, are have have less of a sort of foraging culture, maybe because of the, the language we use. So there are probably some rules about foraging, um, you know, at, at the height you forage, um, if it's near a public highway or if it's near a road from contamination from fumes or, or dogs or whatever. Um, you, you may wish to share with that. And also, where can you forage? Whose, whose land can you forage on? And where might you suggest? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, so in the UK, there, there are ver- various different land types. Um, personally, I'm quite fortunate to, um, to have a great relationship with um, a private landowner who has given me access to go and forage on, on his land. Um, and that's an example where, of permissive foraging. So the landowner basically gets to choose what what the rules are. Um, in public spaces, we have permissive foraging um, for non-commercial uses. Um, so, say you're you know you're going out just to pick. Um, there's a rather arbitrary cutoff of 1.7 kilograms that the British Mycological Society recommend that you pick no more than 1.7 kilograms um, in one forage um, on public land. Um, and then there are specific areas of public land, um, such as Richmond Park, for example, where it's completely banned to forage and you can get a £500 fine just for picking a blackberry. Um, so it really does vary from place to place. One area to bear in mind is uh, sites, of spe- uh, sites of special scientific interest, so triple SIs. Um, these are areas where... It may be completely banned to forage, and um, so it's good. You know, it's good to check what a land type is before you're going out on a walk. And there's a great website, I think, a government website called Magic.org. Um, if you just Google Magic uh, Land Type, and that has a sort of interactive map of of the UK, um, and you can find out what what land type um, you're walking on, so you don't get into need trouble i thought with magic magic land you we were going to start talking about fairies and ley lines and trolls and things but uh, what a great way to allow us to just tackle not tackle to contact the magic of nature because we're we're so fortunate in somerset uh, you mentioned your your private permissive areas but Thinking more broadly, where are the most beautiful places that you like in Somerset, Chris, to go and and maybe forage that others might be allowed to forage? Yeah, so my, my personal favourites are just being up on the Quantocks or in the the Black Downs, which are uh, the two local areas areas of outstanding natural beauty. We are absolutely blessed to have sort of yeah, in stones throw from from the town of Taunton, which are fantastic i even found some porcini mushrooms up on the quantox uh this summer autumn just gone so we really are blessed with um fantastic foraging land and i guess we have to mention whirtleberries which are on exmoor and dartmoor and and uh 
seem to be a, a southwest delicacy. Is that something that you're familiar with? It's not, no. Ah. <laughs> it, it's, um, I know um, the Castle Hotel in Taunton uh, serves them as a delicacy. And uh, they're, they're certainly, they're difficult, I think, to, to forage because they tend to be very low growing and they're, they're a bit bitter. But you can certainly make very nice jam from, from Wurtleberg, I believe. I think you spend a long time picking enough to uh, to uh, to to make some jam, Peter, don't you? Because they're really quite small and uh, not easy to Absolutely. find. Absolutely, and I, I don't think we'd get up to our was it one point seven kilograms? You said, Chris. Yeah. So I, I mean, it's a rather arbitrary figure, but I suppose it's just to stop people um, going out and absolutely depleting, you know, an area of of all the produce. Um, I, I think you'd be pretty lucky to find 1.7 kilograms worth of anything, but it, it is possible. Say you come across a, a giant puffball. I don't know if you've heard of those, but these are fantastic um, mushrooms that are pretty easy to identify for beginners. They are big, white, round, literally the size of a football or even a sheep. They're, they can get grow absolutely enormous and um, they often weigh far in excess of uh 1.7 kilograms but if you yeah i think you just need to exp uh express a bit of common sense really you're not gonna say cut that in half and weigh it out in the field so um as long as you're not taking all of them with you and leaving you know at least 50 percent of what you find i think that's a sensible way to go about your foraging business have you ever come across truffles they're, they're highly prized, aren't they? I, I'm not, not sure I even know what they taste like, but I know they're a great delicacy. Yeah, I, I haven't found them myself yet, but we do actually have them in, in the UK. Um, but it's a, a very sort of uh, secretive um, knowledge base and um, people rightly so are, uh, are secretive of, of where their truffles might grow. Um, we... Uh, yeah, they, they do grow in the UK, particularly at the basis of oak trees, but oaks are so common in the UK that it is very difficult to find without an animal's help um, with their sort of uh, finely acute sense of smell of maybe a, a truffle pig or a dog. Interesting. So I've got a couple of questions, if I may, Chris. What, what time of year is best to go hunting for... Uh, um, edible mushrooms or edible fungi is there a specific time so uh, there's kind of two answers to that i think the, the easy answer is yes uh autumn is generally best but the the better answer is no there are wild edible mushrooms and plants that can be foraged year round um and i think Speaking about the giant puffball again, um, mushrooms in particular are far more climate dependent. So say, say you get the right conditions um, that occur maybe once in August and once in October, you get the same conditions. You might get two blooms of, of giant puffballs in one year um, or maybe even more than two. Um, so I think, yeah, whereas plants are more seasonal and um, they have a very sort of clear cycle of, of having a, a bud and then the flowers grow and then the seeds develop. Um, mushrooms are just the fruiting body. So the apple at the end of a tree, the fruit, the sexually reproductive part 
if the conditions are right for the mycelium, um, which is the majority of the uh, the fungal body to produce these fruiting bodies, the mushrooms, then you know they will do so. Um, so yeah, keep looking all year round, I'd say, um, and learn learn what um, mushrooms might be growing at a particular time of year. It's a great way to divide up your your learning. And what's the difference between a mushroom and a toadstool? Ah, good question. Toadstools are, as I understand, just the um, kind of generic word for a mushroom. But when when you say toadstool, most people think of the, the red spotted uh, fly agaric mushroom. Um, so, yeah, some people consider toadstools as toxic mushrooms or poisonous mushrooms. But for me, I would say they are, you know, the the, the fly agaric, Amanita muscaria, that um, the Cheshire cat was sat on top of in Alice in Wonderland. And I wondered if there's an element of magic mushroom with the uh, uh, the Cheshire cat. Yeah, there's. I, I don't think we get magic mushrooms in this country, do we? So people don't need to be worried about that. Is that right? There's supposedly um, Amanita muscaria is a, is a toxic mushroom, but there's supposedly some way of detoxifying it and getting rid of all the uh, the amatoxins within it. But I, it's not something I would bother trying. There, and there's a good story, actually, um, of Icelandic reindeer herders. Apparently, they used to give their reindeers these um, fly agaric mushrooms to eat because their kidneys were much better at getting rid of all the, the toxins and then they collect the urine to drink and get the psychoactive hallucinogenic effects of it um, without getting the the toxic component that would make them sick and apparently that's how uh, Rudolph got his red nose but we'll, we'll never know really will we? I, I find the phrase uh, please don't try this at home listener coming to mind yeah absolutely I never munch on a hunch if you're, if you're not 100% sure about something then definitely don't go eating it. So, um, Chris, do you do any walks with people? Do you do any uh, any explorations and help people understand this safely? Yeah, I do. I've uh, I've been running them for um, about six months um, in the Taunton area, and I've recently teamed up with um, Open Mental Health Somerset. So, I, I'm running them um, for on airbnb experiences so if you just type in tutti like tutti fruity but tutti fungi into google you can find my website and book onto a, a course through airbnb experiences but the, the hope long term is um to offer these uh, courses um for people suffering with mental health conditions that might be referred uh, to do you know uh, outdoor activities as a mental health treatment um, and we're in the planning stages of that now, but uh, I'm hoping to to get that established in the in the short term. So hopefully by sort of summertime, we'll be running um, courses via Somerset Recovery College, um, and that's just one way of you know encouraging people really to get outside and showing um, the mental health benefits that can come through getting in touch with nature.
That's just great to hear. And uh, I was I was about to say what you've just said, that five ways to well-being, getting in touch with nature, being in nature. And it's something, Peter, that we've come back to time and again in our in our themes, but is I think is becoming of importance um, to the NHS, to the health service, to commissioners and to others for uh, people in Somerset with any sort of um issue uh, emotionally mental well-being and others because contact with nature seems to give us something that we don't get if we're stuck inside and, and looking at screens or stuck inside with 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 walls all around us chris i don't know if you've got any comments on that as to why nature contact with nature helps us or supports us or nurtures us yeah, I, I completely agree. I could wax lyrical about the benefits of being in nature um, for hours, but there, there's good evidence now to say that ecotherapy, which is uh, you know a cure-all for, for mental health conditions, just immersing yourself in nature um, for around 120 minutes per week is, is what they've kind of, several studies now have, have come out with that number. Um, being that's the, the time goal you should aim for to spend uh, outside in nature to reduce your stress i think the key things to remember is that um allowing yourself to disconnect on a regular basis from you know our, our screens and um the bright lights of the hospital <laughs> things like that um that just aren't natural it it's so so important for us um as humans to just really spend time outside where where we evolved to to survive that's great advice chris and i think we're we're moving away from the idea of a group of us who have a mental illness and a group of us who are well to looking upon everyone as having this spectrum of mental well-being from good to bad and that by spending time in nature foraging you can push yourself uh, up the ladder a few rungs on, onto mental well-being is is that something that you recognize yeah absolutely i think being a junior doctor i've experienced a lot of time inside and often overnight uh you know you'll you'll see only bright hospital lights and then you'll finish your shift and walk out and it is actually sunny and then you can't get to sleep and it's just terrible for your mental health and physical health as well so when you do get the chance um on a day off or a weekend or even an evening as they start to get lighter um just spending you know even going for a five minute walk will do you some good um and i'm sure you would agree with with that sentiment uh, absolutely, to the point that Somerset are working on a wider package of uh, nature and well-being offerings to help people generally, particularly with mental health through the Open Health, Open Mental Health Recovery College, as you mentioned earlier, Chris, and also for staff through the uh, Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Hub offer. But um, are your colleagues, Chris? Now, are your colleagues, your junior doctor colleagues, are they on board with it, with this, with contact with nature, or is it a bit fluffy and are they sceptical? Um, most people I speak to think it fun. It's yeah, quite interesting, quite quirky. Um, but you know, I get a generally good reception. People think it's uh, it's a really positive thing to be doing, um, encouraging foraging and just spending time outside. And maybe we do have a, a more adventurous group of 
of people living in Somerset because we are so surrounded by nature and it's a quite a life choice really to um, live in uh, a town rather than a city um, so maybe we are more inclined um, as West Country people to you know spend time outside already. And perhaps your orthopaedic colleagues uh, would be happy that as uh, being out in nature we're boosting our vitamin D levels which helps our, our mental health but also strengthens our bones of course. Yeah exactly and consuming mushrooms as well they have, have a, a pretty high level of vitamin d from a nutritional benefit uh, nutritional standpoint so double double whammy really in the vitamin d benefits on many levels chris it's been a delight meeting you and hearing all about the benefits of foraging in nature and some safe safe do's and don'ts but also the joys of living in Somerset, which we're all privileged to do, uh, the three of us here today. Uh, and so I'd just like to thank you very much for coming along, giving up your time and, and joining us. And uh, thank you for all the work you do in orthopaedics in, in, in Taunton Hospital. Yeah, it's been an absolute, absolute pleasure. And thank you for, for running this podcast. I'm sure it's had an incredible impact on so many people already. So thank you and keep up the fantastic work. You're welcome to come on a, a forage with me anytime. <laughs> You're very kind. I, I will look up Tutti Fungi, uh, but I'm not going to munch on a hunch. Good man. <laughs> exactly. Thank you very much, everyone. And thank you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing podcast. All the best and go well. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Trisider and Dr. Peter Bagshaw. The show was created by David Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group.